y'all. Welcome back to Zora's Daughters, the podcast where we discuss popular culture through a Black feminist anthropological lens. I'm Brendan, and I use she/her pronouns. Hi, everyone. It's your girl Alyssa, also using she/her pronouns. It's our last episode of the semester, last episode of the quote-unquote academic year, the Zora's Daughters academic year. <laughs> like, what? What? I actually learned recently that half of all podcasts don't make it past episode 14. So here we are on episode 20. Boop, 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 boop. Hey, hey, we made it. <laughs> we, we made it. <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about cultural appropriation, bell hooks, twerking, Gen Z slang, in the heights, and more. Perfect. Like, I can <laughs> see why so many podcasts don't make it past episode 14, though. This shit is hard work, y'all. Like, we do all the reading, the research, the writing, the scripting, the social media, the emailing, etc. ourselves. But we could not... Could not, could not have could done not. this without all of you. So thanks to everyone who has listened, shared, engaged, and donated to us. You have had a hand in helping us grow to this point, and we are thankful for each and every one of you. We are, we are. I am so grateful to have had this space to learn, to mentor, and to be in conversation and make friends with people all over the world and across disciplines and subdisciplines. And there's so much more that I would say, but my Aquarius sun rejects further sentimentality. <laughs> well, my Pisces moon has some sentimentality for y'all. Like, we have just been blessed to have our intern with us this semester. Yes. But now she's going off to bigger and better things. So thank you, Mukunte, for all you've added to this team. And we're going to be on break until September. So in the meantime, we'll be making big moves, working on ways to make the podcast and the ZD platform broadly better for all of y'all. And I know we've been hyping it up for a few episodes now, but for real, y'all, big things are popping and little things are stopping. Big things popping, little, little things, things stopping. <laughs> <laughs> but if you feel like you might miss us, do not despair. We'll still be active-ish on social media. So follow us at Zora's Daughters on Instagram. And Zora's underscore daughters on Twitter. And if you'd like to support the podcast and the behind the scenes work we'll be doing over the summer, you can leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, donate via PayPal, or purchase a book from our bookshop on bookshop.org, which supports us and local bookstores. And of course, the links to that will be in the episode description. And before I forget, you know, if you all could not tell, <laughs> right, this is a ZD first. Alyssa and I are actually recording in the same room, and no, it's not a Zoom room, y'all. Boop, 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 boop. Hey, we're actually <laughs> hanging out in the living room studio in Harlem. The living room is mine. <laughs> That's not the name of a recording studio. <laughs> and don't steal that name. I'm sure it probably exists. Uh, <laughs> but yes, we are in Harlem, one of the U.S.'s Black cultural meccas. And if it's a center of Black American culture, then you know, you know it is a focus of white cultural appropriation, it's too. Still I oop, honey. <laughs> like, do we need to talk about that Harlem Shake meme while we're here? No, I don't, I don't think so. That's just... <sighs> we, don't need, we don't need to do all that. Let's just get into the episode, Brendan. What is the word? So our word for today is cultural appropriation. 
Yes, I think this one is a slippery one. Mm -hmm. It's a slippery one. I think that from what I've noticed about when people try to explain what cultural appropriation is, they focus on the appropriation part, mm -hmm. which is completely valid. But I think we need to wrestle with the other word, culture. Girl, that's, that's brave because, you know, <laughs> anthropologists, we really don't even have... I answered to that question. We've been struggling for years. I know, I know. It's such it's it's another slippery term. And mm -hmm. I had a professor in undergrad, a uh, historian, and she was like, "Don't write culture." She said this at the beginning of the class. She was like, "Don't put culture in your essay. Don't even use the word culture. Ooh. It doesn't mean anything." Ooh. Of course, she meant if you're going to use culture, you need to be very clear about what you mean about it. And so. I continue with that and try to be clear with what's meant by culture in every context because the whole concept of cultural appropriation has been critiqued for being a historical and contributing to essentialism and reductionism, particularly because of that slipperiness. Mm -hmm. And so broadly, the way I understand culture is that it's the lens through which we see the world. It's the confluence of knowledge, experience, and behaviors that influence how you understand different situations and the choices that you make. So it's the kind of thing that makes scorpions food for some people and a dangerous insect to other people. Ooh, and a dangerous insect to me. I feel <laughs> like I agree with your definition. Um, and I would add that culture is usually the, the tacit ways that we understand how to act and how to be around each other. So you talk about mm. behaviors and I think also encompasses like how we truly understand spaces that we walk through. And so sometimes these ways of acting and being cross geographic boundaries, or you might observe similarities between what you might perceive to be different groups of people. So one of the easiest examples that I can think of um, is the similarities between food among different peoples in the African diaspora. So you'll find that in the Caribbean and Southern soul food and in West African food among others, they actually have a lot of the same ingredients or preparation techniques. And I learned some of this from that Netflix documentary. Um, <laughs> High on the hog. High on the hog with that awkward host. Um, <laughs> but some scholars would say that these similarities in food would come from similar ways of life. Yes. I'm sure that there's an anthropologist. I want to say that it's Franz Boas, but I just don't want to get it wrong. No, but none of the stands you know, come they... for us, please. <laughs> yeah. I mean... They talk about how um, the canoe, for example, is, is something that is representative of the way that there are similarities across different cultures mm -hmm. or different cultural culture areas, one might say. Um, but the fact that there are differences in how the, the canoe is constructed is representative of the environment that, that, um, that those groups of people needed to adapt to. And if you all are interested in... Um, and like foods and food ways and how they, they're different and similar. There's actually a, a book, I believe it's an edited volume by David Barris and Richard Wilk. Um, and they are both anthropologists and they talk about how like there's red beans in every culture in like Latin America, mm -hmm. the Caribbean, but they're all cooked differently. Anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> so in the context of the term, you know, cultural appropriation, I think the word cultural is specifically re referring to the signs, symbols, practices, mm -hmm. and products, whether they're artistic or linguistic, that emerge from a particular way of life. And so that can include, but is not limited to, knowledge, 
dance, clothing, language, artifacts, music, food, as we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. religious or other symbols like tattoos, decoration, medicine or wellness practices. Yes, we're going to come for you all with your... You know, with your saging apartments, newly and found <laughs> indigenous <laughs> techniques, and it's like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, makeup, hairstyles, things of that nature. Yes. So, in addition to this cultural word, right? Then we have to move to the question of appropriation. Like, what does appropriation actually mean? And we can trace this back to at least as far as Marx who argued that the bourgeoisie appropriates the labor and the product of labor from the proletariat. So appropriation has various connotations and histories, but at its most fundamental, appropriation is, quote, the action of taking something for one's own use, typically without the owner's permission. So let's sit with that. The Mm. question of permission. Hmm. And we're going to break it down. We're going to do an example, right? If you're going to a Yoruba wedding and you're asked to wear a... Gale, and you have one designed and wear it in that context, then that's not appropriation. Right? Mm-hmm. You've been invited into the space and you're showing respect for the customs. Now, if you, a person with zero cultural or relational ties to Nigeria, turn around and put these on a runway and then call them infinity hats because they can be <laughs> wrapped different ways, then girl, that's a problem. Right? Not infinity hats. <laughs> no, like, and if we see that, <laughs> if we see y'all doing that, talking about infinity hats like they're dresses, those infinity dresses that can be wrapped 12 different ways. No, don't do it. Mm-mm, don't do it. <laughs> we ain't trying to see it. Mm-mm. Right? So the question here is the main question that people always ask, right? Is when does this borrowing slide into becoming problematic? And so in the ethics of cultural appropriation, James Young and Conrad Brunk identify three moments when the appropriation of culture becomes an issue, all of which are grounded in the relationship between a dominant culture and an oppressed one. First one, acts that violate the property rights of a culture. Two, acts that attack the identity and viability of a culture or otherwise contribute to undermining them. And three, acts that cause profound offense to members of the affected culture by not respecting their norms. Hmm. Interesting. I know that they're they're one of you know a few people really trying to bring out and expand this idea of cultural appropriation. I'm still not crazy about about this definition. So there's an mm-hmm. opening for folks who are like, I want to do some research. There's definitely an opening there because I think you know property rights. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of groups of people who. For them, property rights is, you know, something that comes out of a white Western philosophical paradigm. And for them, property rights is like, I don't, we don't own, we don't own. So there's that. And then I think like, who defines what is a profound offense? Like, Mm -hmm. what's going to be the limit? What makes something profound? Is like, is a little bit of offensiveness okay? Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> I don't know. But that's that's me being being an anthropologist. But I th- I think it's on the you know, I think it's on the right track. On that note, I think it's important to talk about what cultural appropriation is not. Mm-hmm. And so acculturation, which is the process of adjusting to a new cultural environment while retaining aspects of your primary culture, that's acculturation. So for example, if I move to Morocco and I start speaking Darija, which is the local dialect of Arabic, 
then that's not appropriation, okay? We'll go back to the Nigerians because that's what we were talking about in this episode. Mm -hmm. Even if they wear traditional dress back home, if they immigrate to the U.S. and they start wearing Western clothing, that's not appropriation, okay? That's acculturation. Right. (laughs) And so acculturation has also been described by the anthropologist Alfred Kroeber as changes produced in a culture because of the influence of another culture, with the two cultures becoming similar as the end result. Okay, so that's something akin to what we might call cultural exchange. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about, like, people in China wearing business suits. That could fall under that definition of, of acculturation. Secondly... I didn't say first, but that's okay. Y'all know the next one. (laughs) Assimilation is not appropriation, okay? And I have heard people be like, well, black people speak English and they're in America. Isn't that appropriation? No. No, it is not. Assimilation is when a minority group comes to resemble a society's majority group, whether over time or by force. So Irish immigrants to the U.S. is one example And then the descendants of enslaved Africans in America would be an example of assimilation by force. Mm -hmm. So, no. Black people speaking English in the U.S. is not appropriation. It's survival. Literally. (laughs) Literally. What else are we going to speak? And then white people using black English, that's not about survival. That is an exercise of privilege. Even more so when y'all start calling it Gen Z slang. We're going to talk about that later. So Milton Gordon formulated a series of stages through which an individual must pass in order to be completely assimilated. So acculturation in his theory is actually the first stage in the series. Mm -hmm. And then to be considered assimilated, the individual must be capable of entering social positions and political, economic, and educational areas of the dominant society. Right. So cultural appropriation becomes problematic when there is an imbalance of power. So just because the Chinese were business suits, it doesn't necessarily mean that Europeans can wear kipao, right? There's no mutual understanding or respect that would make that latter example an an exchange, right? That's actually equal and respectful. So cultural appropriation is not just the taking over of a minority's group's cultural norms. It's the simultaneous erasure of that group's association with the form or decontextualizing that cultural form. So wearing a native headdress to a music festival Right? There's no understanding, respect, or exchange there. You're just essentially trying to treat it like a costume. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've been invited to a sweat lodge ceremony and you're asked to wear a particular form of dress, that would not be appropriation. right? You've been invited by that group of people to wear what they their own religious wear, right? so you respect this space. But if you put that form of dress on a white model on the, on the cover of Vogue and call it the next big thing inspired by Marc Jacobs' Fall 2005 show, you know, that's, that's, that's appropriation. That, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and you're taking the symbols of a minority group, erasing their connection, and profiting off of it in a way that would likely be denied to the originating group. This cannot happen in the reverse. Right? So we talked about acculturation earlier, right? A non-white person wearing a business suit is not appropriation, it's acculturation. So if I'm doing something as a black woman that's in line with the dominant culture, I could call that assimilation. Right? So please, please stop with the black women appropriate white culture when they straighten their hair a mess. Mm. Right? It's we 
you, well, those of us who are not natural, right? We straighten our hair because that's what we're told to do. It allows us to survive. Mm-hmm. Allows us to get hired. Allows us to pay bills. Literally. That is part of survival. Mm-hmm. And of course, the concept of cultural appropriation has been critiqued for its essentialism, as I mentioned earlier. You know, no one is saying that a culture, quote unquote, can be reduced to any of these single elements. But one of the questions that we got when we kind of crowdsourced some questions from Instagram was how do we differentiate appreciation and appropriation? And I'm not sure that it's a useful distinction because I think that appropriators often use it as a straw man, Mm -hmm. right? They're like, oh, I'm just appreciating. But you've completely divorced the thing, the thing that you're doing, that you're appropriating from its cultural context, and then you're calling it your your own, or you've othered it. And I want to come back to that in a second. And so when you do that, it seems like it's something new. It seems like it's a product of the dominant group's innovation and creativity, when really it's an effect of theft and their power to make something subversive popular. Period. Or it's a tokenized, exoticized version that perpetuates othering or objectification. So I wanted to give an example that isn't about profiting, because I don't want people to be like, oh, I can just you know, have a, have a fiesta and do all of these things and like wear a sombrero and, you know, mm-hmm. and enjoy Cinco de Mayo. And let's, should we talk about Juneteenth getting Cinco de mayo <laughs> Maybe for another day. Maybe for another day. Yeah. So we're just trying to live. So y'all don't do that. Y'all don't do that. So I wanted to give an example that doesn't involve profiting, but that actually perpetuates the othering. And so, okay, me. Jamaican-ish. <laughs> if I throw a party, I serve Jamaican food, you know, there's going to be Red Stripe, there's going to be Ray and Nephews, I'm going to play dancehall music that people whine to because mm. that's what we do, that's what I do. That's a party. That's a bashment. That's a jam, you know? That's just what we do. So the line then is when some dominant group, I'm going to say white people, if y'all start throwing an island theme party, then that's where the problem is. Because I don't call mine an island theme party or a Jamaican theme party because it's not a theme. It's just how I live my life. That's how mm-hmm. we that's how we party. It's just a party. So if y'all start putting sand on the floor and inviting people to wear dreadlock hats. And coloring your faces. Coloring your faces and then calling it a theme party. Now you're exoticizing it and reinforcing the idea that to celebrate or spend time like this is not a normal way to do so. Mm, exactly. I, I actually think that's a perfect transition into our next segment. So let's get to talking about what we're reading. Yes. What we're reading today is Eating the Other, Desire and Resistance by Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks is an author, scholar, and activist whose work examines the connections between race, gender, and class. Her pen name is based on the names of her mother and grandmother and is lowercase to emphasize the importance of the substance of her writing as opposed to who she is. In her work, she often explores the varied perceptions of Black women and Black women writers and the development of feminist identities. She has authored over 30 books, some of the most notable being Feminist Theory from Margin to Center, Black Looks, Race and Representation, All About Love, New Visions, We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity, and The Will to Change, Men, Masculinity, and Love. Hooks is the Distinguished Professor in Residence at Appalachian Studies at Berea College, 
And the chapter that we're reading is an excerpt from the book Black Looks, Race, and Representation, which was published in 1992. So, boom. Um, (laughs) Hooks comes straight out the gate with a statement that I'm sure shook you as much as it shook me. It did. It like shook me so much. The first time (laughs) I wrote it down, I didn't even finish the sentence. Um, Within commodity culture, ethnicity becomes spice, seasoning that can liven up the dull dish that is mainstream white culture, like, mm. ooh, seasoning, like literal. We talk about seasoning all the time <laughs> and, and the appropriation of seasoning, but like culture as seasoning, ethnicity as spice, right? Hooks very quickly lets us know where she stands on this, right? But it's also an interesting thing because she talks about resistance. And so in this chapter, right, she says that she sees a political revolutionary possibility in the recognition of difference. But she doesn't see that possibility in appropriation, right? Especially when appropriation becomes profit. Mm -hmm. That makes absolute sense. As we were just talking about, we were talking about profit. Here we go. Mm -hmm. But overall in this text, Hooks argues that cultural appropriation serves a double duty, Mm -hmm. right? That it simultaneously reinforces the power and dominance of white people and it diminishes the value of the non-dominant group. It objectifies and exoticizes elements of their way of life and makes them seem like they're a sideshow to whiteness when really, as CJ Terrett said on Instagram, they are untitled documents. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Thank you, Tina, for that one. <laughs> yes, and hey, girl. Hey, girl. Uh, <laughs> white people and other dominant groups cannot erase the violent histories or hegemonic power structures simply by expressing a desire in the other. Hooks is very clear about that. Just because you want us don't mean that you can erase the violence and the power that comes behind that want. And so we've talked about before about how the fetishization of the other does nothing to break down problematic racial hierarchies. And so what Hooks tells us is that she believes that mutual recognition of racism and its impact both on those who are dominated and those who dominate is really the only standpoint that makes possible an encounter between races that is not based on denial and fantasy, end quote. And for me, I was like, hmm, what would that actually look like? Is there ever a point that we can point to in history, right, where there was an encounter that was not based on denial and fantasy on all ends, right? hmm. from the dominated and the dominant, mm. right? And if so, like, what would that look like for us to do now, right? Where's where's that resistance now? I think people put it in interracial relationships or interracial um, <laughs> children as a possibility of that, but I'm not I'm not quite sure. That's what I was about to say. You know, I'm not quite (laughs) sure. I I feel like even in spaces where both sides or all sides can recognize that racism is happening, we still see racial power dynamics. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, go back to our last episode when we talk about Barack Obama and go to the episode in the first season, where our first semester, where we talk about Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was He's like the quintessential miscegenation is going to solve racism person. So there you go. That's denial and fantasy all in one. Um, but yes, I feel like hashtag swirl Instagram would, would have a lot to say on no, it. No, I'm sure. <laughs> 
If y'all don't, if you don't know what swirling is, it's a term for an interracial couple and it's derived from chocolate and vanilla swirl ice cream. <laughs> Which is, again, <sighs> food. Food is at the center. Desire. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Food is at the center of this. this so fascinating. Y'all, this is a little bit my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have in the... In the syllabus, there's going to be some really great pieces, Consuming the Caribbean, which touches on this. There's also um, Eating Other Words slash Worlds um, by Celia Britton. And the line that she said in that that has like sat with me forever was the way that we've consumed the Caribbean, everything about that region has come to be associated with things you put in your mouth. Mm. Mm. And it wasn't just about food. I know. I was getting ready to say, hmm. So read that essay. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, Hooks points out that if pleasure is derived in part by transgression, then fantasies about and desire of the other is where the real fun is to be had, right? Like part part of us enjoying ourselves is doing something that is against the norms, right? Mm. And so what is against the norm, but that which is not the norm? And so appropriation is tied up in that desire too. It's about wanting blackness, wanting power, but also wanting to escape the banality of whiteness. Yet it is that whiteness, the untitled document, the tabula rasa or the blank slate that allows for a claim to cosmopolitanism, that allows for this like appropriation to be appropriate. So to be nothing is to be allowed anything. That is being unmarked creates conditions of possibility. And usually that favorite turn of phrase is followed by for XYZ, you know, creates the conditions of possibility for neoliberal oppression or something Mm -hmm. like that. But that unmarkedness is simply a state of possibility. Or if you want to go down like Deleuze, (laughs) down the Deleuze path, then you're talking about potentiality. So, man. (laughs) The potentialities. But, you know, don't mind us. <laughs> don't <laughs> mind us. <laughs> but this claim to cosmopolitanism and is just the idea that you're formed by many global experiences. And that is, of course, particularly attributed to white people. Right? So it's, it's the same way that people say, like, oh, it's great to, you know, it's great that our kids are bilingual. Our kids mm-hmm. are, you know, they're learning French in school. They're learning Chinese in school. But when they're talking about those kids, they're talking about white people. And when there are actual students, other students who are bilingual because they speak Spanish at home and they speak English at school, Mm -hmm. that's not as valued as the white kids who are learning French as a second language. You're actually labeled as a child that needs additional assistance in school, right? Yes. You have have a special subset, right? It's it's seen as a detriment to your education. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So who gets to be, who gets to be valued and who gets to be that, who gets to have that seen as a detriment, Mm. is racialized. Mm -hmm. So in any case, desire for the other is a symbol of one's cosmopolitanism. So they see themselves as non-racists, and they're not trying to dominate the other, but to be changed by the other, which is its own exercise of power. And then, you know, there are those cis black men who are like, I'm trying to be transformed by white women. (laughs) But I think that's another conversation. For another day. Lord. (laughs) So the example that Hooks gives in in this article is she's walking behind these students who she's pretty sure are students at Yale because that's where she is at the time. 
and you know they're white men and they're talking about all the different quote-unquote ethnic women that they want to sleep with. I when I read that example when I say it took me the fuck out I was like wow this feels very similar to conversations that I've witnessed at Duke Mm -hmm. where white frat members would talk about getting with different types of women some black women and other women of color were targeted. They were called racial epithets in public, but then contacted privately for sex. Hmm. And it was wild. Like, many, many stories I've heard about that. But Hooks reminds us that desire is not just about who you want to fuck, right? That's not People reduce desirability to that, but it's not about that. Mm-hmm. Just that, right? It's, it's also about power relationships. So the inability to reverse that desire, right, and to achieve the same effect, right? A, a black man desiring a white woman and maybe accomplishing that relationship or not, right? It's not the same as a white woman desiring a black man. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not the same effect. right? That, so that is what really opens up or highlights that there's a difference in power along the lines of race and gender. Yeah. I mean, they might believe consciously or unconsciously that those relationships will help them transcend their blackness. But then eventually they'll realize it doesn't work, right? Like, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, someone is still going to remind you that you're just a... Mm. And she might remind you. Mm. Like, didn't... That happened. That happened at the Starbucks. Do you remember? Did you see that? Yes. The white woman who was like, you're just a bitch ass. Mm. In front of her mixed race children. Said that to a black man at Starbucks. Okay, I'm sure you all heard about that. So it's like there's someone who's going to remind you that you're just that, that your mixed race children are going to grow up to be the same mm, that white Mm -hmm. women, that that white woman terrorized in school. Mm -hmm. Like there is not a way. Meanwhile, white women or white men or white people, when they sleep with exotic others, they're seen as cosmopolitan, as open minded, as being unquestionably not racist. Like there's no way she could be racist because she married a black man and she has two black children. No, but I wanted to talk about one of the questions that we got asked, which is why do Asian people own most black hair businesses Mm. in the U.S.? And it it actually follows in Canada um, or in Toronto. Oh. And so I'm I'm not really sure if that's a question of cultural appropriation, more so just capitalism. So I did like a quick bit of research and it seems like in the 60s, a lot of wigs were made in East Asia, especially Korea. And black people were the major consumers. And then around that same time, the U.S. banned wigs made with hair from China. So Korea was then able to corner the distribution channels. Mm. And they wanted to make these wigs available to the biggest market, black folks, right? Mm. And so in the documentary Good Hair, you also find out that there are still only a few distributors of wigs and bundles to the U.S. And they can handpick who they want to work with which is essentially other Koreans. And so Gay Young Park, an anthropologist at UCLA, has some work about this. There's also an ethnography called On My Own, Korean Businesses and Race Relations in America by In Jin Yoon. And those said, shed some light on, on the topic. Right. And so I think in this case, the remedy is going to be Black-owned hair supply stores. But also, if you have natural hair... When I tell you that you don't need all the products you think you need. Right. Capitalism has told us we need to have all these different Mm -hmm. hair products for our, quote, unruly, unmanageable hair. Exactly. I use three products on wash day. My wash day is not a day. It's an hour. Mm. 
And if you want to know more, follow Jennifer Rose NYC, Q's Curl Friend, and Brown Sugar Curl, and you'll learn how to live your best life with just just three products (laughs) and a a short wash day, a wash hour. For real. And I think one thing I'll add to the location of... um, the location in particular of Korean businesses in black neighborhoods and things mm. like that is we have to think about the history of this country with redlining. And so mm. black people were not able to own property in a lot of ways because because of anti-blackness, because of racism, because of redlining, because of segregation, because of et cetera, et cetera. All right? So you're not able to get the loans to buy the property to have your own business, but who is? Mm. Right? And maybe, I don't know this history because I haven't exactly studied Asian property rights, but it's possible, right, that Asian people were also excluded from buying property in white neighborhoods. Mm. So it was like, well, we can't let you have a business here, but you can have a business here in Mm. this black neighborhood. Um, And we've talked about how anti-blackness affects everyone, whether you are black, white, or not, right, in in all of our episodes. So just thinking about how anti-blackness allows us to complicate when we talk about redlining and segregation. And the possibilities of that. Mm, brought the, up together. To mm. the hair thing. I got locks, girl. I said, I'm tired of this. Like, <laughs> all I do, I use a shampoo. And that's it. I use a shampoo in my hair. And that's and it. One product. I have one product. I braid my hair, wash it about 25 minutes, and then I let it dry. And I do what it do. Wash day <laughs> is no longer a thing for me. Someone else does my hair. I'm just... Love to see it. Free. Supporting black businesses, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. That was a nice digression, as, <laughs> as we are so want to do. Um, but I wanted to return to the question of capitalism and cultural appropriation, right? And so Hooks is definitely speaking to both the implications of cultural appropriation and racism in global capitalism, which is effectively how this whole, like, black hair Black hair products owned by majority Koreans came to be. Mm -hmm. So she writes, quote, when race and ethnicity become commodified as resources for pleasure, the culture of specific groups, as well as the bodies of individuals, can be seen as constituting an alternative playground where members of dominating races, genders, sexual practices affirm their power over in intimate relations in intimate relations with the other. Mm. One of the examples she gives is that. When Pepsi finds out that black people love them some Pepsi, then they start marketing to black people. Mm. So they're featuring us in their commercials. They're doing things like that. And so essentially, whenever it is profitable, white people will absorb or eat the other and make it their own. Right. And it's not only when it's profitable, right? It's also when it's pleasurable. Speaks idea. So... (laughs) (laughs) Pow. (laughs) Oh, got excited. Okay. (laughs) It's not like people culturally appropriate begrudgingly or out of coercion, right? No one's forcing you to get those box sprays that don't work for your edges, right? Mm. It's a a choice that feels good, Mm. right? They're able to project feelings of pleasure, delight, even anger in some cases when we think about you know, the Boston Tea Party that everyone's, everyone's taught where they donned the headdresses, and were able to act out their anger against being taxed, hmm. right? They're able to project these feelings onto the image of the other that they consume and then appropriate. 
So acting black, as an example of one of those things, quote, allows them to feel something that they couldn't feel in addition to being something that they couldn't be. But the gag is, right, that the power to feel or to be the other actually reifies that you are, in fact, white and have power. So it, it marks this invisible power that you have to take on other people's cultural aspects while still remaining dominant. So basically, TLDR, right, by acting black, one can only highlight just how white they are. Mm, this, this. And it's not, it's not just that it's because they seem like your high school teacher trying to be relatable, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's it's a different thing. That ability to act black mm-hmm. is a product of whiteness. So you're reinforcing your whiteness mm-hmm. by acting black. Which, if you want to know more about, check out our episode, Not My Latini Dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that said, I think there was something that she, she wrote that really made me pause. I'll just read the quote because who can say it better than Bell Hooks? <laughs> quote, concurrently... Marginalized groups deemed other, who have been ignored, rendered invisible, can be seduced by the emphasis on otherness, by its commodification, because it offers the promise of recognition and reconciliation. Mm. So this is, this is another reason, because we say this all the time, this is another reason why representation is not the end-all, be-all. There's a caveat, right? And Bell Hook says that caveat is the acknowledged other must assume recognizable forms. So Kamala Harris Mm -hmm. and the way she may have gone to Howard Mm -hmm. and all these things that everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is so great. First woman of color. Great. But she is the other in recognizable form because she, quote, knows the right fork to use. Right. Like this part had me shook too. And there's a flip side to this recognizable form or maybe just another extension of it, right? This... The incorporated other must still be filtered through these recognizable forms. And so we talked about archetypes of Black women that we discussed in our Massage Noir episode, particularly Sapphire, Jezebel, and Mammy. And these usually become the lenses through which the appropriation of Black women's culture is filtered. So you don't see white women culturally appropriating Black women with relaxers and business suits. Hmm. Hmm. Right? They typically don't pattern their speech after the respectable Black woman, right? They might call Michelle Obama their hero, but them acting like Michelle Obama is not them culturally appropriating blackness, right? Michelle Obama is actually assimilated into a white dominant culture, right? What these women do is that they usually fashion themselves after the black woman who is easily recognizable, but it's not necessarily socially accepted, right? The ghetto black woman. That's that's Rachel Dolezal, like... All day, every Type day. one, type right there. Right. And so you all might know the great theorist and songstress, K. Michelle, um, <laughs> who apparently I learned the other days is old school R&B these days. So I'm no really feeling all, every year of my um, 28 right now. Um, <laughs> she has a short song that talks about cultural appropriation and racialized dynamics of desire in a very real way. Mm. So it's called Kim K. And I'm not going to sing here. But she begins the song with, look, why when I do this shit, they mad, but when they do this shit, they glad. And the Mm. chorus starts, wish I could be a Kardashian so I could be black, put my face over Pac, wear my braid to the back, throw a filter on that, 
Because ain't shit real. And ain't shit funny. So fuck how you feel. Who are are black women not theorists? I mean Are we not theorists? And <laughs> like y'all, K Michelle, y'all might come for her, but she be speaking the truth sometimes, right? And it's like, what aspects of black femme culture and even of black ghettoness, right, do we see become accepted through white women's appropriation of it? Right. The thing only becomes, once a white woman appropriate it, right, then it transforms into a thing that only becomes acceptable and recognizable when it's done by them. So Hooks talks about this in another way, where she says, quote, the commodification of difference promotes paradigms of consumption wherein whatever difference the other inhabits is eradicated via exchange by a consumer cannibalism that not only displaces the other, but denies the significance of that other's history through a process of decontextualization, right? So in this sense, if we think about Kim Kardashian, right, her body no longer, it no longer becomes a black woman's body, right? It then becomes a Kardashian body. A Kardashian body. Mm. So then black women who get surgery, right, simulate a Kardashian body, right, and not necessarily the body that their ancestors might have brought when they came here, right? Women are no longer emulating black women's bodies when they get those surgeries. They're emulating the Kardashians. And it erases all the cultural histories around that. And it's no longer also a body that people treat as exotic and should be put in museums. And, Hmm. you know, like the history shows when we think about black women's bodies. And so through cultural appropriation, right, the other becomes erased and and replaced, which, if I haven't said this enough, is another way racialized power dynamics show up. Because even if I were to cannibalize whiteness, right, if I were to say, okay, I'm going to make myself into a white woman. Oh, my God. I can't even say that with a straight. <laughs> can't even say that straight. <laughs> even if I were to say that, right, it's, that doesn't mean that whiteness loses its dominance or disappears, right? It actually magnifies itself. Mm. Hmm. I think... I think that really points nicely to that question um, that Lauren Michelle Jackson supervisor asked, mm-hmm. and we we're going to talk about it towards the end of the episode. But that question was, are these people really performing blackness? Mm. And that was what her, I believe it was her mentor, her supervisor said, you really need to sit with this before you write your book or before you write your dissertation, white Negroes. And if all of these white women are getting lip filler and getting butt implants, are they really on a one-to-one basis taking black attributes and putting it onto their bodies? Mm. Or are they taking this, this like performance of a performance of a performance and mm. putting that onto their bodies? And if so, is that really blackness? Mm. Her. So... Something for y'all to sit with. We're going to leave out with a lot of questions this episode. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you'll have a whole summer to reflect on them. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so that's great. Um, and I think that, you know, that's what, that's what Bell Hooks is then getting at, right? She's saying, by eating the other, that is how one asserts power and privilege. And so blackness is something that is desired because it disrupts the status quo, but at the same time reasserts dominance over blackness. And so this essay really speaks to the whole black fishing thing on the mm-hmm. part of white women. Oh, Lord. You know, like, <laughs> what better way to escape the banality of whiteness than to inhabit the other? And that's something that I'm kind of pulling out of, of Hooks' work because one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording was just 
the, the focus on masculinity mm-hmm. and men, right? It's like, it's about white men's desire. It's, then she takes it to black men. And so I was really thinking, okay, white men, you know, they want to seduce and become the other or be transformed through the other, I should say. Women actually want to inhabit it. Mm-hmm. So that's odd. And I would, you know, maybe there's some work out there um, that we can get at. But I think this is probably because patriarchy dictates that womanhood creates women as vessels to be consumed while men are the primary consumers. So speaking of consumption. Consumption. Let's get into it. All right. Final segment of the final episode. Final episode. I had to pull my stool up for this one. Oh, this is going to be a good one. Because (laughs) it's just like, what? 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 In the world. What in the world? What's going on? What's going on? <laughs> like, this week's obligatory, where do we start? Is It was definitely saved for this segment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's so much to say. So many wonderfully terrifying examples. Mm-hmm. Like, do we start with the carry necklace from Sex and the City? Or do we start with boxer braids? Do we start with twerking or TikTok? I don't know. All I have is a deep Negro spiritual side. <laughs> deep Negro spiritual side. You know, I'm a side with you because, girl, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and let's also say this has been going on for a long, 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 long time. Long, long time. <laughs> but I think let's start with Khalil Green. Khalil Green is an undergraduate at Yale. You all may have heard of him because he became Yale's first black student body president in 2020. Mm. Yes, 2020, that country's big age, Mm -hmm. as we say. He also has a TikTok series called How Everything Gen Z Does Originated with Black People, where he explains how Gen Z culture is just whitewashed black culture. So he talks about the phrase, no cap, sheesh. And the lip bite challenge. The lip that one y'all should just be embarrassed about I, that. You know, and if you don't know, <laughs> if you don't know what the lip bite challenge is, is basically where people bite their lip and squint their eyes, and it's actually yeah. just like a whitewashed uh, light skin face that right. we've been doing for years. Or they bite where their lips should be. <laughs> they be biting their chin. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, I, I listened to this podcast. Um, it's a, you know, white women, two white women who date and, you know, they talk about dating and relationships and they live in New York City. Um, and so for that reason, I kind of, I like listening to it and hear what's going on. Um, I call it the white girl podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so whenever Bay is like, oh, which podcast are you listening to? I'm like the white girl podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, overall, I, I like the content, but sometimes they'll say things like, go off, sis. Go off, queen. I'm and I'm crying. like, oh, my God. I'm like, please stop. You don't need to do this. And so, like, <laughs> on that note, someone on Twitter, and I, I just wish that I had their their profile, they said that they don't know what white women mean when they say gang gang. Gang like, gang. Like, what gang, Susan? The KKK? <laughs> <laughs> like... There's no gang gang. Please stop. Oh, please. <laughs> and the thing is, like, the, the women on this podcast, you know, they're not even Gen Z. They're older millennials. 
So that really, really feels like when your teacher would try to use slang to see to to seem relatable. Like it really yeah. comes off that way. And it's thinking of the gang gang thing. Like it, for me, it's like which grand wizard are you trying to salute here? Like, no. Like which one? Um, I always cringe when I hear non-black women say things that I know they took from drag culture or black, queer, and trans spaces. Mm -hmm. And it's even worse, though. Not only do we all take them, but y'all literally misuse these terms. But I'm in this place in my life, right, where I refuse to correct them because y'all don't need unfettered access to our interior spaces anymore. So please keep on with your, quote, throwing shade on X, Y, Z. You don't throw shade on. Now we just we're not gonna tell you what how to say it, but you don't throw shade on anything. And the woo chili, sweetie, <laughs> keep on, please, keep on. And I'm gonna say this to my black folks, and we're gonna come back to this, right? Especially my young people on the, all the TikTokers out here. I sound like <laughs> I've, I've aged out, y'all. But our ancestors had a language and a dialect and a distinct culture for a reason. Mm. So even when they were under the direct threat of death, right, they at least kept some shit to themselves. We do not have to culturally translate for nobody, right? We don't have to give them access to us. We are sacred. So some shit can actually just be ours. Yes. Like twerking. Please. That is Please. one of the things Please. that I really wanted to talk about. Because mm -hmm. this actually came up in the twerk community recently. I wish that I could attribute this. But it was a couple weeks ago and I didn't know that we were going to do this episode. There's a black woman... Um, you know, she, she shares twerk videos, she offers classes, and she was calling out white women who, who twerk and saying that it's appropriative. And it's not appreciation because, one, they don't support black women who twerk and or are strippers. Mm -hmm. And two, they get praised for doing things that when done by black women is considered obscene or they get their accounts deleted right. and then they lose like all of their followers, all of their ability to make an income. Meanwhile, you have Nastia Nas or whatever, however you say her name, mm -hmm. who is a white woman who twerks. And on her profile, she calls herself a twerk icon. Like, why? And, of course, she was brought to my attention by The Shade Room, which is, like, the ultimate popular, like, black popular culture cosign. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're a white person on The Shade Room, you're basically, you're fine. Like, you're cool. That's, that's what it says, which is a problem. And so all of this really reminded me of this video of, we're going to do a 90 Day Fiance reference, but Kalani and Colini. So they're two Samoan American women on 90 Day Fiance, and they do this TikTok to the song Bundles by Kayla Nicole Jones. And if you're like, who is that? She is actually the face of that meme looking down at the phone, looking up <laughs> into the camera, looking all like, oh shit, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> She's wearing the wig cap. Um, and so she, she does music as well. So part of it, part of the lyrics are bad bitch, ass fat, 40-inch hair, yours came in a pack. And so, of course, Kalini and Kalani, they have long, thick hair. And, you know, they were sure to hold that up to the camera to prove to us that their hair 
did not come in a pack, mm. and it's 40 inches. And my friend was like, I'm so tired of non-black women of color positioning themselves as better black women. Mm. And so it just reminded me of the poem by Crystal Valentine and Aaliyah Jihad. It's called Hide Your Shea Butter. And they were like, it's not that we don't trust white people. It's that y'all really think my black looks better on you. Ooh, Yo, you got some profound friends. <laughs> um, I try. Yeah, I mean, I would say even, we even had that experience earlier this year, right, when a non-black woman used AVE and her desirability to call us out, right? She was flipping her hair. She had that Instagram chain filter on. Mm. Um, and her reason that she used when previously questioned about that before, right, for talking the way that she does is that she grew up around black people, right? And we hear that often, especially when non-black people are using AV, right? It's, I grew up around black people, so that's how I learned how to talk. Aquafina is another example, but now that she's made it, mm-hmm. right, the black scent and the affect is gone, right? But I think this brings us nicely to a question someone had asked us on Instagram, which is whether or, whether gatekeeping fits in, and if so, how, Right? And in the poem, they also say, no more giving away our secrets. When you invite your white friends over, hide your shea butter, hide your coconut oil, hide your lock gel. Let those white dreads unravel. Blue. (laughs) Right? And it's like, I think that gatekeeping is necessary. And so I'm going to be problematic here. (laughs) I know that blackness, especially black Americanness, is a currency that flows around the world so people feel entitled to have it. But y'all, we really don't have to give it away. One of the ways that we've internalized racism is that we feel the need to protect our oppressors, y'all. And we don't got to do it no more. And most of us are no longer in a place where it's a life or death situation if we cannot be perceived. So we think that being fully transparent or being represented or being, quote, understood, because the question underneath that is, can they really understand us? Mm. Um, right? Can they really see us? Are we, re- you know, whatever? Will save us, right? We think all of that will save us, but the gag is that us having to do that work of explaining ourselves is actually literally white supremacist power at work, right? And we internalize it by objectifying ourselves. We are entitled to an interiority, whether that's inter- like in and of your own physical body, right, or between a community, right? We are entitled to an interiority. Like I said, we sacred. Right, we work magic with language, with power, with hair, etc. Like, think about it. We take these boring ass words like honey, and depending on when, where, or how you say it, right, it means something completely different. Mm. Those are facts, right? We are not the spice; we're the main dish. Per 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 per. As one might say in Jamaica, you are oxtail. No let them treat you like chicken foot. Mm. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I think if I think also I, if you want to read more about the impossibility of privacy, just as an intro, Kristen Smith has an article called "Impossible Privacy: Black Women and Police Terror." But mm-hmm. there are other people who have definitely talked about black interiority. That yeah. exactly. Right, like black that phrase exactly. Right, like Elizabeth Alexander, the poet. I mean, 
even our namesake, Zora Neale Hurston, does a little bit of black interior work when people used to say that she was tap dancing for white people. And she's like, well, black people only tell you what they want you to know anyway. So mm. how do you know that I'm also not doing the same thing, right? Um, so we over here, we believe in keeping some things private, reclaiming privacy, even if privacy is an impossibility, right? Reclaiming that, reclaiming yes. an interiority. Yes. And we just want to encourage you all to do the same. Yep. Uh, Edouard Glissant would call it opacity. Mm-hmm. That's another one that you can think about, think through. We don't have to share everything with everybody. We don't. And it's not being mean. But, you know, anyway, let me get off my little <laughs> thing. Um, you wanted, all right, you wanted, I mean, people wanted us to talk about In the Heights. Yeah. And I'm going to tell y'all, caveat to all, everything that I say. I did not watch that movie, okay? Neither have I. <laughs> yeah, like we have not watched it. And here's what I'm going to say. Toni Morrison told us about that man. Mm. But y'all, and I'm going to say y'all because I also did not watch Hamilton. Y'all was up there at Hamilton singing along. <laughs> Toni Morrison already told us what was up. So this- she, she hated Hamilton so much that she funded a play to tear it apart. <laughs> she said he is not to be trusted. And here we are years later. But is, is that not iconic? Like, that is iconic. Sure. <laughs> that is the iconic. icon. The Aquarius icon. <laughs> Toni Morrison. In the Heights. Um, someone wrote in to us on Instagram to ask us to talk about how appropriation and colorism intersect. As well as our thoughts on appropriation by lighter skinned slash more privileged people within the same race. I think this can best be answered by thinking about how the other that is incorporated must be easily recognizable. So mm. I'm going to take that turn of phrase. Mm. I'm going to make that phrase do multiple forms of work for us. So we know that darker skinned, poor black people are easily recognizable when we think about racialized stereotypes, right? But the more palatable black person, right, to incorporate are those, are the person that may appear to be closer to a white ideal. Mm. So we think about in the context of the Heights, right, we see a near complete erasure of black Latinx people while their histories and cultures were appropriated in the film, right? The dancing, the music. There was even a moment in the film, right, the clip that I saw, y'all, because I didn't watch it where the light-skinned actors were talking about their ancestors on the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. And it's like, yes, perhaps you had some ancestors whose presence some of y'all be continually denying, right? Who endured that violence, but you do not face the direct violence of being visibly black. Mm. You actually benefit from not being visibly black. So I think when people talk about lighter-skinned people appropriating um, the struggles, right, because I don't, I don't think there's a such thing as a darker-skinned culture, per se, mm. right? There's a set of experiences that are particular to darker-skinned people, but I don't know if I would label that as a culture. Yeah. And that's, that's a response to someone who did ask a question related to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that actually is the frustration is, right, that... Lighter skinned people are appropriating the experiences, saying that they experience the same kind of violence, right? Which, it, which in and of itself is violent to say, right? Mm. Because what it does is actually erase the experiences of darker skinned people. Mm. And 
while white supremacy and anti-blackness harms all of us, right? It cannot be contested that darker-skinned people experience it in the worst ways. So when lighter-skinned people position themselves as the most harmed or the most affected, right, their palatability actually makes way for their, the struggles of darker-skinned people to be erased, right? Because then white people are like, well, we can... We can solve your needs. And it's mm-hmm. like, but maybe this darker skinned woman is, doesn't need what you need. Maybe she's not looking to be accepted in this space in a certain way. Maybe she needs a different type of help. But meeting your needs because of your palatability and your recognizability erases hers. <sighs> hmm. Yes. Yes. I just feel like it's not even... It's not even necessarily that they are that they might be positioning themselves as the most harmed or the most affected, but it's mm-hmm. like you're you're equating your experiences or you're kind of aligning mm-hmm. your experiences with those of people who actually have completely different experiences, which then shows that you don't actually understand those experiences. You're not thinking you're not thinking about those whatsoever. Right. So I I also haven't watched the movie. I watched some interviews and things like that. Um, And one thing that the cast and the producers, you know, they kept saying, they were like, the casting was colorblind. I don't think they used that exact term, you know, but that was what, that was what they implied, right? They were like, we just picked the best person for the role. Mm -hmm. You know, one woman even said, you know, when we did the casting, we were like, oh, we're actually a lot like the characters that were written um, so, you know, it wasn't really about skin complexion or skin color. It was just about choosing the best person for the rule. And I'm like, okay, you're not Shonda Rhimes. Like, you weren't doing colorblind casting, all right? The reason that the best person for, or the best people for the rules turned out to all be light-skinned and white <laughs> was because the role was written to, was written to be light-skinned and white. Like, even if it wasn't explicitly stated. I mean, the math this math thing. <laughs> if it so, wasn't explicitly stated. The social stated. studies are socially studying, okay? It's, <laughs> you know, one plus one in this in this situation is equaling up to two. Um, and while we're thinking about this, right, light-skinned, white, Latinx mm. identity, I saw this TikTok where the OP, I know that's what the kids be calling them on Twitter, I just... <laughs> I don't really know what that means. Um, original poster. Oh. <laughs> okay. The oh, Yeah, the original poster, right? Who is a non-black Latina? She says, we can't wear braids or sing certain songs. Okay, no problem at all. But don't let me catch y'all singing or dancing reggaeton, <laughs> salsa, etc. Speaking our language or eating our food ever again. And I just want to say, honey, let me pull it up. Pull up to the mic. Let's let's have a conversation. Um, reggaeton, salsa, merengue, etc. Right, came into existence after the Spanish came into contact with the Africans. Those dances came into existence because of slavery. So what? Reggaeton is is literally got reggae in the name. What what is and also just since we're here since we're here, what exactly is your language? Hmm. Spanish. Because honey, let me tell you, black people also speak Spanish. 
But saying a racial slur, and we all know what that racial slur is that everybody keeps fighting to say, mm-hmm. right, is not the same as dancing reggaeton. But these false equivalencies, right, these erasures and decontextualizations is actually born out of that white supremacist power dynamic, right? And it's just wild because I'm like, how did this even make sense to type? You got on your good internet, on your good data, <laughs> on cricket, uh, I'm going to be, you know, your cricket data hotspot to say Not this. <laughs> I'm being real shady. I don't know this person, but you know, that's wild, like- but this brings me back to my main question, and this is one that I'm going to keep coming back to, and this is also, you know, you can call me problematic, whatever you want to call me, right? It's like, what is the use of Latinidad and this identity, right, if it's not to be anti-Black? Because mm. there's no way that you can characterize this idea as anything but anti-Black. Well... Well, I this reminds me of a tweet that went around and this woman who wrote this tweet, she got roasted, she deleted the tweet. <laughs> so I don't have it in its entirety. But she wrote something along the lines of for all the folks who have publicly said that they won't support in the heights because there are no Afro-Latinos in lead roles. Did you have that same energy for black films with no Afro-Latinos in the lead roles? Black Panther, for example. (laughs) People roasted her for this. They were like, you can't even get your history right. It's supposed to be a country that didn't experience colonization. So there wouldn't be Afro-Latinos in Wakanda. It's not a, no, it doesn't work. It was just like, (sighs) but, but no, because that's not even right because Lupita Nyong'o is Kenyan Mexican. Yeah. So come, I'm sorry, come again. Lupita Nyong'o is. Is Afro-Latina, right? So no, you were you were upset about the lack of presence of light skinned people with curly hair. Blue. That's what that's what that was. You couldn't even get it right about the Afro Latina stuff, honey. <laughs> there, <laughs> oh yo, the backlash lashes bag. You couldn't even get that part right. Ooh. Mm-mm. <laughs> um yeah. So that was if y'all want to look that up the um. The tweets are hilarious. <laughs> so on that note, I think we're just going to leave you to check out our episode, Not My Latini Dad, for more on that one. It features the wonderful Daisy Guzman, yes. and she really schools us on, on all of these things. And as a final note, I think if you're like, ah, not about to read bell hooks, then definitely check out the book White Negroes by Lauren Michelle Jackson. We actually started reading it for this episode, um, but it wasn't quite what we needed to do for this podcast Mm. episode. And so she talks about the music and entertainment industry, which someone asked us about on Instagram. She talks about memes. She talks about TV chefs. You know, she gets into politics and all of these different aspects. And so I just wanted to reiterate that question 
that her mentor asked her, which I think is a really generative one for you all to think about. And the question was, are these people really performing blackness? Is Miley Cyrus really twerking as an example, right? You know, perhaps it's a desire to twerk. It's a want for twerking. But is what she's doing the same gesture as a black woman twerking? And I mean, I would say no, because that shit don't even look the same, even though she might be popping her back in in the same way. So, I mean, barely. (laughs) Barely. (laughs) (laughs) But those are some questions to leave you all to meditate on for the summer. Yes. We have, we're we're coming to a close. Oh, man. Well, That was that. You have completed your first year. Clap, clap, snap, snap, tap, tap, pop, pop. (laughs) Thank you for all of the support again. And we will be back in the fall with our sophomore season of Zora's Daughters. Yes. Thank you all for listening. This episode was produced by yours truly, your girl, Alyssa James, and the lovely Brandon Tynes. Our intern is Menkute Whaley, and music is by Segnon Tewell. The podcast is distributed in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. This season of the podcast is generously funded by the Racial Justice Mini-Grant Program at Columbia University, which is funded through a partnership with the Office of University Life, the Office of the Vice Provost for Faculty Advancement, and the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life. Further funding has been provided by grants from the Office for Academic Diversity and Inclusion, the Arts and Science Graduate Council, and donations from folks just like you who we love and who love us. Yes, so thank you for all of the support. We would love to hear what you have to say about this episode, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughter. All right, y'all, it's the summertime. Get outside, enjoy yourselves, and be kind to yourselves. Bye. Bye. Without a snack, that's it. That's all I got to say.